It's great to be here with you this morning, whether you're here on our Candegua campus, uh, online campus, or part of our Hopewell campus. We are continuing in our series uh, we're calling Connected, where we're looking at how we can connect uh, in, in a greater way to the Lord and also connect to one another. Uh, we've looked at a, a number of topics. Last week, uh, Pastor Karen did an excellent job uh, looking at the love languages. If you weren't able to, to be a part of participating in the service to hear that, you can still go to crosswinds.church and you can uh, pick up that message. You'll, you'll definitely want to uh, view it if you have it. And even if you have, it'd probably be worth a view or two again. Uh, she did such a good job with it. Uh, we're going to continue uh, with our series looking at a topic that ties together two topics we've already looked at. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the issue of, of our character. And, and three weeks ago, we looked at our temperament. And this week, we're going to look at personality. And I understand that personality and temperament and character are three concepts uh, that we use to talk about differently, uh, the different ways in which we think, feel, and eventually act. And it's the similarities between the three that can sometimes cause confusion. Uh, sometimes we'll say, for instance, that person has a good temperament or, or that person has a, uh, has a good personality. And what we usually mean is, is that they don't rub us the wrong way. Uh, usually our, our way of measuring someone else's temperament or character or, or, or personality is, is whether or not uh, they make us feel good or bad. Uh, and yet God has so much more, so much more intended as we look at these things. And as we look at personality, we'll, we'll draw them in. My hope is a couple of things, few things actually, um, that we'll gain a little more knowledge, we'll gain a little bit more clarity, and more importantly, as we look at God's word, but we'll get an understanding of what he wants to do with our personalities. Again, temperament and the character are, are fundamental parts of our personality. And so let's define the three. Let's sort of clarify a little bit. What's the difference between temperament, character, and personality? Temperament is the natural part of your temperament that comes from your genes. You're, you're born with your temperament. God can redeem your temperament, but the temperament you're born with is the temperament you're going to have for the rest of your life. Your character is unique qualities impressed by nature or habits on a person, distinguishing one person from another. Character grows in time. It changes in time. It, it's something that we, we see developed in our life. And then personality is the sum of your character and temperament and environmental influences. Think of it this way. Our personality is not merely a product of our genetic inheritance, but the product of how we have allowed our environment to form our character utilizing our temperament to reveal our unique personality. Now, if that's confused you, just stay with me. We're going to get there. Our, our personality is the group of emotions, perceptions, and actions that form a person's behavior patterns. Now, I know that all sounds a lot like psychology, and there's a good reason, because it is. It is psychology. But the Word of God has much to say about our personality. And understanding our personality and, and that of others allows us to live a more fuller life, the, the joy-filled life that God has in store for us in Christ Jesus. So we're going to jump in. What does the Bible have to say about personalities? And one of the reasons that we even as believers can be confused is because the Bible uses several words to talk about our personality, and one of them is the word spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, 10-11. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And so we see in that verse really 
I'd say two spirits, but really a spirit, and then many spirits represented there. We have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, then we have our spirits, and, and there's a human spirit that all of us possess. It's eternal. Our soul, our spirit is eternal. And more than any other component of what we are, it's what enables us to be in God's image, and yet each and every one of us is unique. That, that, that we have this, this God image impressed on our very spirits, and yet throughout this room, there's not any one of us alike. We may be similar, but we're not alike. When you become a Christian, you don't become a clone. When you become a Christian, God redeems your personality. He redeems your temperament. We're able to reflect Christ more fully in the uniqueness that each of us are. In other words, your, in other words, your spirit is yours, and my spirit is mine. And it's my spirit that projects my personality, my mind, my attributes, and my knowledge, my understanding, my wisdom, and my discernment. Think about it this way. When you die, what spirit returns to God? Yeah, I want to encourage you this morning by thinking about your death. When you die, what spirit returns to God? Your spirit returns to God. And when I die, my spirit will return to God. They're different spirits. We're not part of a collective spirit. Your spirit's yours, my spirit's mine. And what happens when we come to Christ is this beautiful uh, uniting, if you will, the very spirit of God working with our spirit in order to help us grow in Christ. An expression scripture uses also talking about the personality is heart. And, and what the Bible says about the heart, many times it's really talking about a personality or our spirit. All three I'm using interchangeably. The Bible describes the heart as the center of a person's moral awareness and consciousness. Our heart is the essence of who we are. When my oldest uh, child, my daughter Vanessa, uh, she was about four or five, and she came out of Sunday school one day, and I asked her how Sunday school was, and she, you know, she had fun, and she said, but my Sunday school teacher said, Jesus lives in my heart, and I told her that wasn't true. Now, you can take that a number of ways, right? And, and so I wanted to hear her out a little bit. Kids are literal, right? And so when the teacher told her that Jesus lived in her heart, she pictured Jesus living in her biological heart, and she was one of those, she's my child, who thought, that's not right. That doesn't make any sense. And she told her Sunday school teacher that, which I was sort of proud and also wish she hadn't. But, but, but the reality of it is they were both right. They were both right. Sometimes you'll see uh, Christian imagery uh, where like, there's an actual heart, and Jesus is like, open the door, I guess, and lives in there. And he isn't. Like, he's not just in our heart. That's not what the scripture wants us to understand by that. If we understand the heart being the essence of who we are, he's not just a part of an organ in our life. He is part of all of our life, the essence of who we are. And so when the Sunday school teacher, of course, said Jesus lives in your heart, they meant that Jesus is, is living in the essence of who you are. He's, he's that close to you. And so the Bible uses the word heart in this way. Many times, it's the essence of who we are. Not a physical heart, although sometimes in Scripture it is referring to that. But most of the time, it's referring to the essence of who we are. Consider Philippians 4.8. It's talking about our heart. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. People actually think with their heart. You say, well, I think with my mind. Now, the essence of who we are uses the mind to think. We think with our heart. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. 
By the way, one of the more humbling verses in the Bible. How many of you are planners out there? Right? I like to plan. But the reality of it is we have to hold our plans sort of lightly before God because we make the plans, but he does what? He establishes our steps. Anyone ever have a good plan and God had another one in mind? And yet we look at this and we realize that planning is described as a function of the heart. And that's why when we talk about Christ being the essence of our heart, how important is that in our planning? Psalm 119.11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. People can actually hide the word of God in their heart. In fact, the scripture tells us that the word of God is living and active. And why is it living and active? It's what it's speaking of itself, the scripture. Because God's word is, is, is as true today as it's always been. You know, I, I say this quite a bit when people say, do you hear the voice of God? And I say, every time I open the word of God, he speaks to me. He directs me. And so we talk about hiding the word of God in our heart. What, what we're really talking about is allowing the word of God to master us, to, to be a part of who we are, to, to control our essence, which controls what we do and say. Matthew 13, 14. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Perception is described as a function of the heart. How many of us pray, God, help, us, help me be able to, to perceive things the way you do. Give me a spirit of discernment so that I can know how to walk. Mark 2.8. And immediately Jesus perceived in the spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Hearts. The ability to weigh evidence and make a rational, reasonable decision is described as an intellectual function of the heart, the essence of who we are. And to me, that's extremely encouraging because it doesn't mean it rests purely on my mind's ability to function. It's on my spirit's ability, my heart's ability to be transformed by God, that it's not my mind that directs my heart. It's my heart then that directs my mind. And the Bible describes the heart then as the emotional center of our personality. That what spews out of our heart, good or bad, is from the essence of who we are. Uh, listen to these, there are several of them. Love comes from our heart. We understand that. Confidence comes from our heart. Joy, peace, unity and gladness, hate, fear, sorrow, frustration, division, and strife. Do you notice something about that list? How many of you think the top half is a lot more uh, exciting than the second half? I mean, right? I mean, how many of us understand the, the challenge? I mean, we want to be loving people. But how many of you from time to time have found hate in your heart? Don't raise your hand. We'll just sort of do this. To, I'll, I'll just say, right? And, and when we do, what do we, what do we, what do we do? Hopefully what we do as believers, by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we come to him and say, Lord, please replace us with your love. Replace us with your love. The Spirit of God doesn't convict because he doesn't love us. He convicts because he does. And to think that we can live life contrary to what God has called us to and experience the peace and the love and the power that God has for us is foolishness. Right, church? So when the Spirit convicts us, it's not out of, out of some type of, oh, I'm going to show you you're not all that. He's convicting us so that we can have a course correction. Have you ever needed a course correction? Like, that doesn't stop when you're not a child anymore, right? Because you're always God's child. And so when the Spirit convicts and says, look, there's something in your heart on that bottom part of the list, and I want to take you to the top part of that list, that happens in our heart. 
when God, when God looks at the essence of who we are and says, let me change the way you're seeing the world. Let me change the way you're seeing others. Let me, let me allow you to become more and more like Jesus. And, and that doesn't mean we're like Jesus. We don't become God. Like one thing I've learned is there, there's a God, I'm not him. C.S. Lewis said that, I love that statement. There's a God, I'm not him. And he does such a better job of being God than I do. And by the way, he does such a better job of being God than you do, would, you know? And so what, what happens is, is as we come to the Lord and we see these, these weaknesses in our life, we bring them to them and say, Lord, help us become more. Help us become like Christ in what? His character and his love, his purpose and his priorities. And it doesn't just change us, it changes our relationships. It can change our culture. As we see our heart, our personality, it's really our personhood. And people also express uh, many things with their heart, but, but one of them is our faith, our personality, our spirit, our heart. It is so connected to our faith. It shouldn't surprise us. But when the scripture talks about our spirit and our personality, our heart, as being the essence of who we are, but it connects so much to, to who we are in Christ. People find, find, find salvation in Christ when they respond to the gospel with their hearts. Listen to Romans 6, 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. This, of course, is what the Sunday school teacher was teaching Vanessa. To respond with the, your heart, the core essence of who you are. I've heard people ask others, have you prayed the prayer? The prayer of salvation, right? The prayer. Can I tell you something? There isn't a the prayer. It doesn't exist. There's not, there isn't one form that you have to use. It's just not. What they're really asking is, have you come to the Lord? Prayer is talking to God. That's all it is. It's talking and listening. Talking to God, listening to his voice. Have you, have you done that? Have you thanked him for dying for your sins, being resurrected for your salvation? Have you, have you given the essence of who you are? And what do we do when we come to Christ? We're basically saying, Lord, I'm giving... I'm giving you everything I know about you, knowing there's more to know about you than I know right now. Isn't that the truth? And as we come to the Lord very humbly and say, I, I, of what I understand, I surrender myself to you, but, but I know there's going to be more. And that's why we wrestle sometimes. We come to Christ, we receive him as Savior and Lord. And Lord, direct my steps, teach me your ways. If you're new to Christ, maybe new to church, you're reading scripture and you go, I didn't know that. I've been a believer for many years and there's still times where I go, man, I, I just didn't quite see it last time I read that. And God's continuing that work in us. Ongoing spiritual growth in our life continues out of our heart's response to the things of God. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that's talking about finances right there, right? It's getting quiet in here. And, 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 and it's talking about giving of God's tithes and, his, and the offerings, right? It's, it's, it's giving to him. And it says that we should not be feeling like forced into giving. It shouldn't be that. It should be a decision of our heart, what we give and, and what God's called us to give, whether we do it or not. And, and we're to do it cheerfully. And I, I remember years ago, my pastor, when I was in high school, he said people sometimes they ask him, does that mean if I'm not giving cheerfully, I don't have to give? And he goes, no, you need to give until you become cheerful. <laughs> Isn't that the way it really works, though? Like, like sometimes, it, it's not about being fake. It's meaning stepping into the steps that Christ set for us 
until those steps become a natural part of us. Like, I don't know many people who naturally love their enemies. But I'll tell you what, you start praying for someone who considers you an enemy or you maybe have considered an enemy, you can't help but have your heart change. I remember years ago praying for somebody who was totally an individual I didn't want to hang around with. It was a very difficult, one of those who I say, man, they have a really difficult personality, which meant was they rubbed me wrong. And, and, and I had a leader in the, in the student ministry say, start praying for them and see what happens. And I can remember as I prayed for them one time, someone saying something negative about them, and I go, you don't know their whole story. And all of a sudden I thought, well, you don't know their whole story either. But I found myself defending them. Why? Because I stepped into the practices that the scripture had taught me to do, which is pray for your enemies. And before I know it, they weren't an enemy anymore. They were a child of God who just needed his touch. And that's how all the, the spiritual disciplines work. They help us find ourselves stepping into things that we're maybe not so comfortable with because we haven't done them before we came to Christ. But now that we're in Christ, we're doing And the spirit of God changes our heart. We relate to one another as Christians out of a willingness to do God's will from our heart. This is a difficult passage, really. Ephesians 6, 5 through 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I wrestle with that one a little bit. That verse rubs me the wrong way, if I can just say it sometimes when I look at it. But what's the verse really teaching? It's if you can't do anything about your current circumstance, but you can live in such a way that it points people to Jesus. And it reminds me of our character a little bit. I heard this, and you probably heard it too, about character. The way someone treats you speaks to their character. The way you respond to how they treat you speaks to your character. And let me tell you something. People have changed society by not reacting in like, by choosing the higher ground by allowing the Lord to be their strength and give them a, a, a type of character that's somewhat supernatural, not because they're supernatural, because the supernatural one is working in and through them. And it changes people when they see that. It's so countercultural. It's so counterfallen human. But God does that work. The heart's the seed of our moral awareness. Deep within every person, think about this, is a God-given inkling that he exists in a sense of moral standards. And often the sense of morality is a reflection of God's character. One of my favorite discussions to have with people who have yet to receive Christ, right? But they're, they're seeking. They're wanting to understand. I'll say, do, do you know, like, right and wrong? And I'll say, well, yeah, I know there's a right and I know there's a wrong. I said, how do you know that? Like, what makes something right and what makes something wrong? And, of course, a lot of times they'll say, well, you know, our society has laws. And, and I said, but where did we get those laws? Like, who all of a sudden woke up one day and thought, it's not a good thing to kill people? Right? I mean, do you know when murder started? The second generation of human beings, by the way. And someone had to go, that's not right. You see an injustice, and you go, that's not right. But how, how do we determine that? Could it be that there's a piece of God within each and every one of us, that God has placed a part of himself within the deep soul of every single human being, and that within us, there's an ability to at least somehow know there's a right and wrong. All you have to do is watch a child. And if they don't feel you're doing something right, they'll say, that's not fair. Who told you what fair is? And it's there. 
And God's given us that, that, that peace of God that, that draws us to him. Even before we come to know him. And then when we come to know him, this, this, this relationship with him, it really inflames within us this heart on fire for him. Desperately wanting to know him and make him known to the world around us. The Bible describes this inkling of God and sense of morality as a work of Christ, the light that enlightens us. Look at John 1.9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus is the light, the true light, that gives light to everyone. If you want to know what truth is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know how to respond to people, look at Jesus. He's our model. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. And we must train our conscience, our hearts, then by the word of God. His word, again, living and active, that as we seek to master God's word, his word masters us, directs our steps. And what's uncomfortable for a while becomes more comfortable as his spirit forms us more and more into the image of Christ. What we're talking about here is a redeemed personality. That, That... Many a believer, I think, they, they, they come to Christ, they receive him as Savior, and then all they're thinking from that point forward is heaven. And I'm here to tell you, there's a time between the day you say yes to Jesus and usually heaven. And in between that time is this opportunity to grow in the Lord and, and to fall deeper in love with him. And as we fall deeper in love with Christ, what happens? His love consumes us and we're able to love others with his love. That's why you've heard me say, couples will come in, married couples will come in, and they'll say, look, we're having some problems with our marriage. And I'll say, where are you with Jesus? And they look at me like, I didn't come to talk about Jesus. I have a problem in my marriage. And deep down, I've always thought, and why are you talking to a pastor? Like, all I have is Jesus. Like, I can send you to someone who's going to tell you something else, but if your relationship with God's not right, your relationship with other people's not going to be right. Because I don't know about you, but without Jesus, I'm a pretty selfish person. Like, I like me. I like getting my own way. Anyone like getting their own way? But the Word of God teaches me that I'm to be a servant to others. How do I fit into that? Why fit into that when I become more like Jesus? When he takes my uniqueness, my temperament, my character, forming my character, this personality, essence of who I am, my spirit, and says, become more like Jesus. Not, not a Christian clone, but in my uniqueness, reflecting his character and his love and his purposes, priorities in my life. See, here's the reality. No matter how warped our personalities, and by the way, all of us have warped personalities, whether you know it or not. That may have been new to you, but by the way, you do. No matter how warped our personalities, we're still made in the image of God. Think about that. Each and every one of us. That's, that's, that's the unifying force, is that. We are image bearers, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. But catch this. No matter how lovely your personality is, you're still marred by sin. We need God to redeem our personalities. And every individual's personality is, is, is creative, it's unique. Integral is its inborn characteristics and external forces. One of my favorite examples of that is, is the story of Jacob from the Old Testament. Jacob was an, individual, was an interesting individual. He was a twin, second born of twins. And the scripture tells us that when he was being born, that he reached up to grab his older brother by minutes, ankle, to pull him back in and sort of go first. Now, by the way, that's an interesting birth. 
But what we learn is his temperament, his unredeemed temperament was, I want to be first. I want to be in control. Any clerics out there? We talked about it a few weeks ago. And, and that's who he was. And then all of a sudden, we see that being sort of the, the nature part of things, but there's a nurture part of things, because his mom wants him to be the firstborn too, apparently, and wants him to have all the rights that go with that. And so she, in a conniving way, tries to get him to be the firstborn in the sense of having all these rights. And what does he do? He learns from nurture how to be conniving. And he learns it pretty well. And so we find Jacob in a situation where he has to flee his home because his brother, who did get ripped off of being, his first, being the firstborn, his birthright was given to, to Jacob, he flees. He, he's scared because one thing his brother was was quite the strong person from what we see in Scripture. And as he flees, he has an encounter with God. It's this encounter with God that my wife and I named our second child Jacob, not because of the conniving part of things, <laughs> but because of this part. Jacob, remember that Jacob who held up to, and wanted to grab his brother? This is a Jacob who wrestles with God and won't let go. And my prayer before Jacob was born, when we knew we were going to name it, was that he would wrestle with God and never let him go. It's still my prayer for him today. They would just hold on, hold on. And this begins a unique relationship between Jacob and God. By the way, he loses the fight. If you wrestle with God, he always wins, okay? But it starts this, this amazing journey of Jacob who over time is humbled. Through circumstances, is, his temperament, his personality is, is somewhat redeemed. When we, when we see him coming, when we see him coming back home, he's not the same Jacob. He's humble. Humble before his brother. God does a work in an individual who places themselves in his hands. I mean, here's the good news. God's redemption is offered to each and every one of us, including the redemption of our personality. One of the images we get of scripture, uh, in Scripture of Christians is that of sheep, which is an interesting image. Think of this. We become more faithful sheep in God's pasture when we allow the good shepherd to pastor our personalities and shape our disposition. I'm going to follow you. One verse in Scripture says we're to keep in step with the Spirit. For years I thought that meant I was like hand in hand with the Spirit trying to keep up with them. And yet the actual word picture there in the Greek is, is not side by side, co-equals. It's the Spirit is the senior partner in this thing. And it's like he's stepping in the sand and we're trying to put our feet where he put his. Lord, teach me to walk in your ways. Teach me to walk in your steps. May the world around me see a redeemed me, humbly pursuing you. Christ's body, the church, by the way, operates at its fullest potential when every believer lives out of redeemed personality. It's not that we attempt to perfect our personality apart from Christ. In other words, this message isn't about get out there and just be better because you're going to find that a frustrating journey without the Lord. But allow Christ to magnify our personality's strengths and overcome our personality's weaknesses. Isn't that really what it's about? God, help the strengths that you've allowed to develop in me and that I've been born with. Help them be magnified. And let the weaknesses, give me victory over those things. How's that happen? It's by inviting the strong current of the Holy Spirit's power and love in and through our lives. God, direct me. Direct me through your word. Direct me when I'm in conversations. Direct my thoughts. Direct my actions. See, Here's the good news. We're not held captive to the flaws of our personalities. 
Christ offers us salvation and the ability for our heart to be transformed into an ever greater reflection of him. That our unique personality can, can be also a unique reflection of the perfect love of Christ. There's hope in Christ. There's abundant life in Christ. We've gained some knowledge and hopefully some clarity on what our personality, our very heart, the core of who we are is. But, but what's this mean in our daily living? It means that maturing Christians do not unthinkingly embrace their personality or ashamedly reject their personality. In other words, God meets us where we're at. He loves you the way you are. But when he comes to us, he says, don't expect to remain that way. Did you catch that? That, that, that when we, the scripture says, we're enemies of God, he still died for us. So if you're sitting here and going, man, I know my personality is messed up. Why would God love me? He loves you. That's all that matters. Do you know how much you're worth the very son of God dying for you? That's infinite. Infinite. It's like when a child would say to you, why do you love me? And you say, I love you because I love you. Not because of what you do and don't do. My granddaughter was in the back of service. We were back there worshiping together. While I was worshiping, she was doing some other things, but I think she was in her own way. I love that girl. I loved her before she was born. Not to get too sappy, but you might have known I'm a grandparent now. Sort of comes with the territory. I looked at her mom and I said, I never knew that you could magnify the joy you brought into my life until this girl was born. Grandparents, you know what I'm talking about? How much more does God love you? Do you hear what I said? Look at me. How much more does God love you? And he meets us where we're at, and he says, don't expect to stay there. We offer ourselves up to God, and he renews our personality. We invite and cooperate with the Holy Spirit in his workings. We follow the Spirit's leading and his, his signposts, so to speak, to greater Christ-likeness. If you want to live a, a redeemed personality, here's the path. Start with union with Jesus. Start with receiving him as Savior and Lord. And, and that Lord part of saying, Lord, teach me how to, to walk in your ways. Take who I am, the person you've created me to be, and, and help your character be established in me. Help your love flow through me. May, may your purpose be my purpose, your priorities my priorities, and let that redeemed you shine through. I say this almost every week, and I, I say it because I need to be reminded, and I think we all do. I know I'm not what I ought to be but I'm not what I used to be. I'm being changed. I'm a work in progress. And all God asks of us is to continue to be a work in progress. Continue to journey with him. Continue to, to see the possibilities of what God wants to do in and through you. You may be sitting here this morning here or online, Hope Hopewell Campus. You may feel hopeless. You may be living in fear. You may have some relational difficulties. You may be actually sitting there thinking you're, you're not much or thinking you're more than you should. But I want to tell you that God in heaven loves you. And he offers us a new life in him. One that hits the very core of who we are, the heart, the essence of our being. As you go about living, do so with all the inconsistencies and idiosyncrasies of your personality, being your in Christ redeemed self. That's what God offers this church. And that's what the world needs. Our, our culture right now throughout the world, by the way, is so divided. Christ is the unifier. 
His love is the unifier. And may the world see his church be the ones who bring his peace and his love and his justice to the world around us. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father God, I'm taken back by your love for us. How complete it is, how totally undeserving it is, and yet you love us anyway. I often say this because it's just so true that you're not a God who just says you love us. You showed it. You died on the cross for our sins, and yet you, you're a living Christ. You, you were resurrected for our salvation. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who have made that decision, that we would bask in the reality of it this morning. That, that if, if, if they're anything like me, that they're overwhelmed by what all that means. And I'm so thankful for your love. I'm so thankful for your invitation of being redeemed, of, 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 of not just being offered eternity with you, but from the day I said yes to you, this amazing journey of becoming like Jesus. God, I pray for that individual or maybe individuals who, maybe they're here on the Canandaigua campus, maybe the Hopewell campus, maybe, Lord God, the online campus. It doesn't really matter. If they're in the sound of my voice that have yet to make a decision to receive you as Lord and Savior, that, Lord God, that perhaps even now in the quietness of their heart, there's that word heart again, in the quietness of their heart, Father God, that they would receive you. They'd thank you for dying for their sins, being resurrected for their salvation but they'd offer up themselves to you and all that they know about you and, and be committed to the journey of just growing and their knowing you so that, Lord God, we can make you known. Lord, thank you for blessing our gathering here this morning. And as we scatter throughout this region, may we, redeemed people, we works in progress, be the answer, be the ones who bring the peace into the chaos, be the ones, Lord God, who bring love where there's division. Be the ones who reflect your character in the hope that others would come to you and find the hope we have, the joy we have, the joy-filled life we have in you. And we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.